0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference.
1: Hey
2: there, honey. Uh, I got to eat quick. I got to dive right back into work again tonight. So uh, what do you got under the napkin here?
1: We had breakfast for dinner tonight.
2: Yay, breakfast yeah. for dinner. Huh. My favorite. <laughs>
1: Did everything go all right at work today?
2: You know, funny story actually, Uh, you remember Simpson from the great karaoke debacle? Yeah, well, he got on one of his tirades today in the break room and he's going through all his impersonations of everyone in the office. So he gets around to doing Tony, our boss, and he's going on and on about how Tony's so excited that she can make people do dishes at work because apparently she can't get them to do them at home. And just as he gets to that part, Tony walks in behind him. He has no clue she's there. And suddenly he has that moment where it's like, she's standing right behind me, isn't she? Yeah, I'm pretty sure a little bit of pee came out when he realized she was there. So I was just glad it wasn't me that was getting reamed out this time. Uh, Of course, that's going to happen tomorrow during our next installment of the 23-Minute Smart Meeting. Yeah, I just wish they only lasted 23 minutes, because then I could spend the rest of the time crying to myself in my cubicle. This woman, she's just intolerable.
1: You know, I miss the old days when you could come home from work and we could hang out with the kids and just be a family.
2: Uh, yeah, me too. I mean, I, thats I just want us to get out of debt. I mean, I don't want to be working so much, you know.
1: I know, I'm, I'm not saying that this isn't an attack, I just, I miss you. I miss being with you.
2: Yeah, I know you're not trying to attack me, but it seems like every time we have this discussion, I feel the same amount of pressure to perform at home that I'm feeling to perform at work, and it just gets hard, I just, I don't know, you get where I'm going with this, right?
1: I know, I'm. I'm not trying to be part of the problem, I'm just, just trying to help. Um, Speaking of helping, um, uh, I told you last night that the Sherwood kids were coming over. I was going to watch them because they needed to get out for a couple hours. So that'll be just in a little bit.
2: When are the Sherwoods going to watch our kids for a couple hours so that we can go out? I mean, I'd like to do that.
1: Okay, Jim, when would we be able to do that? You leave for work before the sun comes up, you come home after dinner, and then you go straight into the office to work. What would the Sherwoods be able to do for us? Watch the kids while I sit at home and wait for you to get back?
2: Really? We're, we're going to do this again? Like, it's like you don't understand what I'm doing here. It's, it's my job. I have to, if I don't keep doing what I'm doing at work, then I'm going to lose my job, Okay. The problem is they've already downsized once. They're talking about restructuring again. If I don't keep my numbers up, that means I'm next. I mean, is that what you want? Do you want me to lose my job?
1: Well, what if you lost your job? Who
2: cares? Who cares? Who cares? Are you living in this reality? Because we have a mortgage. We have children. We have responsibilities.
1: Jim, I understand all that. And I'm not trying to neglect those things, but really... What is more important, your kids, your family? The best we get is a kiss at the door or a glance up from your computer screen. This isn't what we dreamed about. This isn't how it's supposed to be.
2: I know it's not how it's supposed to be, but what do you want me to do? I mean, I don't want to get fired, and I'm not going to quit. If I don't do what I do at work, then we can't live the way that we want to.
1: I understand all that, but you're not the man I need right now. You don't, you don't risk anymore. You don't trust anymore. You walk around like you're some frantic, anxious man, afraid of what might happen.
2: You know what? I, I can't believe you just said that. I Everything I do, everything I am is because what I have to do, what I know I have to do for us, to provide for
1: us. That is not true. You know, you don't have to work to show me that you love me. You don't have to get any more accounts at work to keep me. You don't have to win any awards at work to show your kids that you love them. And frankly, all of this toil is what is destroying this family that you are working so hard to protect Can't you see that?
2: Leslie, can't you see that if I slow down at work, my world is going to fall apart?
1: Jim, you're dreaming if you think you can keep it up and keep your family. If you want a relationship with work, then great. You're building yourself up well. But if you want a relationship with me and with your kids, you need to let go of fear.
2: Fear? (laughs) What am I afraid of?
1: Failure, being exposed as a fraud, as a bad father, as a bad husband. I don't know. I don't know what you're afraid of, but I do know that you're afraid. And until you figure this out, you're just gonna keep burying yourself under all of this stress.
2: You know what? I am afraid. Like I said before, I'm afraid that if I don't keep working like I am at work, then I'm, I'm my whole world's gonna fall apart. I mean what what are you what fall you apart,
1: leave- Jim? I love you. I'm not going to leave you, but your world is already falling apart. That's why it's time to do something different, like resting, like trusting, trusting in something bigger than yourself. I love you and your kids love you, but we need you to be present with us. You don't need to work to show us that you love us. You just need to be here. You know, we've been through worse before and we have gotten through it and we were stronger than ever. And it'll happen again. But what we're doing right now, it's not working.
2: Yeah, I know. I just, I don't know how to fix it.
1: Well, how about tomorrow? Come home from work. I'll have the Sherwoods watch the kids and just be ready to be with me. And then on saturday we'll just take an hour and we'll go to the park with the kids and we'll just be together it's all it's about it's just being together and it's just little steps that's all
0: morning quest he is risen he is risen indeed that's right let's say it again he is risen he is risen indeed. Uh, my name is Jeremy Shelley. I'm the youth and teaching pastor here, and I am delighted to be able to celebrate Easter with you this morning. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Easter and and what it really means for us, and. Um, it seems that, uh, you know, we all know why we're here today, to, to celebrate the risen Christ, right? But, but if we don't remember where we've come from, uh, then, then we lose the profound sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and it's diminished for us in our minds without us even knowing it. So I want to take you on a journey this morning. Ross and I are going to take you on a journey uh, this morning. So I want to ask you a question: Will you come along with me? Will you join me this morning as we go back and discover how brilliant God truly is? See, I want to look back before uh, we look forward. Um, in Genesis one, two, and three, we read this amazing about this amazing place that God created. Within his creation, we meet Adam and Eve who have this unique relationship with the triune God, a relationship that no other human in all of time has ever experienced. It's a physical connection with God. And here's what I mean. When we read about the creation account, all controversy aside, one thing that I think is abundantly clear for us is that God designed the earth uh, to be his temple. And specifically, the garden is the place where he would not only be enthroned, but it was also a place where he was going to dwell, where God resides, where he walks and where he lives and where he relates to humanity. Genesis 3, verse 8 reads this way, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, can you imagine that? What it must have been like to be Adam and Eve and hear the footsteps of God? To live in the same neighborhood, to see, hear, smell, and touch the living, all-powerful creator of everything. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? This is, um, when I think about it, this is what I call the kneecap of God. And and what I mean by that is, I imagine, you know, Adam and Eve are walking around in the garden, and they're looking up at God, and God's way taller than than they are, and so they just kind of see his kneecap all the time. But, you know, they're physically there in, in the presence of God. Adam and Eve... Near God, walking in the garden. Now, if you want a picture of what life will look like in eternity, this is it. Right here in the very beginning of the Bible. Dwelling with God in the garden, where everything is for us, where we we are set up for success and prosperity, where there's no strife, no worry, no toil or hardship, where we get to be physically connected and in touch with God without any mystery at all, whatsoever. It's it's amazing. This is perfection. This is what Adam and Eve had from the very beginning of their lives until, of course, the fall. Because of the choice that they made, we suffer the consequences of their sin, and humanity was banished from the garden and cursed with toil and death. So as we follow this story along, we read that God removes Adam and Eve from the garden with this cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. See, there's a stark contrast from the life that Adam and Eve had um, once they were uh, taken out of the garden. And isn't it really A picture of our reality now you know the drama that we just saw moments ago was really a picture of what life is like after the fall a man's life defined by the work that he does but deep within all of us is the recognition that there's more that there's another possibility because once there was the garden could it ever be that way again Of course, that's the hope, but so often we get lost in the myriad of difficulties that we face. You know, the the bosses that we have, the job stress, the disease, the busyness of all that we have going on. And and just like the two who for the first time were going to live separated from God, we ask, where are you? For you and I, we have never known never smelled, never touched, nor heard God in the same way that Adam and Eve did. And so a reality of living with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit seems so far away, so distant, and so hard to imagine that when we ask the question, where are you, God? We don't expect a response most of the time. And yet, at least for me, there's this place of hope deep down that if I could just trust what I read about God... And if I would just explore what relationship with him could actually look and be like, then maybe I could experience a glimmer of what Adam and Eve experienced. Like Leslie from the drama, there's hope for a life that's not driven by work or the demands of a high-pressured existence, but instead safely secured by the blessing of authentic relationship. A relationship that knows exactly where god is now fortunately for us the story that god was writing goes beyond this curse god in his grand narrative does not stop after the fall he moves the story forward
3: feel a little bit like monday night wwe tag team right but Jeremy's right the story does continue to move forward, and the story we see recorded all throughout the Bible is a story of God's desire for relationship. It's paramount all throughout the Bible. And one of the things that's actually easier for us when we read the Bible to see how God pursues us is because the Bible presents us with this wake me up when I'm older perspective. Remember the lyrics from the song that Dusty sang just a moment ago and the band sang? They tell me I'm too young to understand. They say I'm caught up in a dream. That life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes. So wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. And you know what life is like in that song. Life gets going fast, all the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the demands of work and the demands of family and the demands and the, and the desires of our dreams all mesh together to this rapid pace of life. And we end up living life in a way that we can't always see clearly in the in the blur of the of the pace and the fog of the issues that keep coming up in our life, we tend to ask ourselves sometimes with intense emotion and sometimes with a sense of resignation, Where are you, God? Life can pass us by like our eyes are closed and then we wake up one day. When's the last time you asked that question? Where are you, God? I only have to go back a couple days. A few days ago, I was sitting with a couple. She's going through a terminal illness and just a real desperate illness that just brings, it's the kind that just brings life to a screeching halt. And I'm sitting there talking with them, trying to understand where God is in this. And as I'm sitting there talking with them and praying with them and praying with them before and after times, I'm asking God the question, where are you? And why am I asking that? Well, it's because I've seen God miraculously heal people. I've seen it in my family, I've seen it in my own life, I've seen it in other people's lives. In fact, we've even had people here pray for others in the last few months, and we've seen a couple people miraculously healed. But I was sitting there asking God, where are you in this situation right now? And you've asked that question too. You may ask it regularly when you have a bad day or a bad week and that combines with a fight with your spouse or something else going on or just some sort of pain or injustice that you or somebody else around you have experienced and you go, where are you, God, in all of this? Because in the confusion of those moments, even if it's only a temporary sense of helplessness that you feel in that moment, you're asking, God, where are you? Now, even if you're one here who says, I don't have any faith... I don't, I don't ask that question of God. I think you actually might. I'm not so sure you don't. I just think you're a person who moves on from that question more quickly. And you probably even justify that as something healthy. And then to a certain extent, maybe it is. Because you probably say things like this, Oh, I don't, I don't get caught up in depressing, demotivating thoughts that only hold me back from moving forward and getting, getting things done, right? And truthfully, that attitude in your life is part of your success. Because part of your success hinges on the fact that you don't get bogged down by the negatives, by the setbacks in life, and you just keep moving forward. So there's really, and I understand that, there's really no sense in getting bogged down in the questions and feelings we don't have solid answers for. I was sitting with this couple and, and the man looked at me as I asked him about where his faith was at and all of this, and he says, I don't have any faith, which is another way of him saying, uh I don't ask the question, where are you, God? And yet he actually asked it without realizing it. At one point in the conversation over the last few days, he said to someone, he said, God doesn't answer a sinner's prayer. Which means that basically what he's saying is, I've asked the question, I've thought the question, but I know God isn't going to answer it, so I won't ask it. Right? See, even if you believe that God is distant that you can't be 100% certain of who he is, he doesn't want to be really personally engaged in your life, or you're not having to figure that out yet, you've asked that question, where are you, and you have just already answered it, saying God's not going to answer me. And truth be told, some of you really believe that you can't figure that whole God thing out clearly, and you have a theological and philosophical basis you believe that holds that really strongly. But I suspect for maybe many of you, if not most of you, part of the reason you believe God is distant is because you believe that God doesn't answer a sinner's prayer. You don't feel worthy of hearing an answer to that question from God. So we move on with life, or life just moves us on. And we live life with this faint, faint hope of waking up when I'm older and wiser. And as the rush of life carries us along, we tend to not see where God is at in all of it. But the beauty of the Bible is when we see the stories of people of faith in the Bible, we see 20, 40, 80, 100 years captured in the matter of just a few paragraphs to a few pages. We get this bird's eye view of their life and get to see them actually honestly asking this question, what, where are you, God? And we also get to see very quickly how God has been pursuing them actively all along. We get to see the forest and not just the trees and honestly for our own lives it takes a lot of, a lot of times it takes our us analyzing our lives from that bird's eye view maybe even with some time when we're wiser and we're older to recognize with a different perspective How God truly is pursuing us and has been involved in our lives. Uh, There's many examples in the Bible. Abraham's one of them. Abraham's this traveling businessman, this wealthy, nomadic, traveling businessman. And he he is in several foreign countries where he feels unsafe. And he's asking this question, where are you, God? And yet we also see God pursuing him. When you look at Abraham, he was born into this syncretistic family, a family that worshipped both God and idols. And God comes to him and pursues him and calls him out of that and says, I'm going to make your life a blessing so that you can be a blessing to the entire world. And he begins this adventurous journey, which we see in a few short pages that he becomes hugely blessed. And we also see these moments where he felt unsafe for himself, for his wife, for his possessions. It's a beautiful story of God pursuing Abraham, fulfilling promises in a tangible way, some of which good old Abe didn't even understand and couldn't see until he woke up wiser and older and see the bird's eye view of the forest in his own life. We see this example in the great King David's life, the greatest king of all of Israel's history. In desperate times, he would regularly ask the question, where are you, God? And you can understand it. When you read a story, it's stories of betrayal by his cousin, by his son. It's stories of deceitful politicking, of many different uh, difficult decisions he has to make, of family tragedy. And somewhere in there, David writes Psalm 35 where he's asking this question, where are you, God? And it says this. He says, how long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. And I will give you thanks in the great assembly. Among the throngs, I will praise you. And David does what we do. He bargains with God in those desperate times of life. He says, if you'll just act, I'll praise you. He goes on and says, awake, arise to my defense, Lord. Contend for me, my God and my Lord. Where are you? And yet we see in the Cliff Notes version recorded in the Bible of David's life, God pursuing David time and time again. So that David's faith is built on tangible moments when he heard God's voice and it came to pass. On tangible moments when God rescued him, when God protected him and gave him wisdom. And we also see in that context where David's asking those questions, where are you, God? That David recounts those tangible moments, those tangible times when God pursued him, and he knew it. And David, because of this habit of looking at his life and taking time to get away and see his life from the bird's eye view, recognized those moments. He relived those moments. He reminded himself in his journaling of those moments when God was real to him. And then we see even Jesus identifying with with us and asking this very same question. The eyewitness accounts record Jesus when he's on the cross. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can understand all the theology that the the theology is that at that moment, Jesus was taking on all of the weight of the sin of every single one of us. And he was completely separated and alienated from God. And he asks this question that we ask, where are you, God? See, it's not a bad or a wrong question for us to ask. It's a fine question for us. It's shocking for us to see Jesus to ask it. I mean, we could understand it better if the disciples were asking. I mean, Jesus' disciples are following this guy, this miracle worker, this master, this amazing teacher, this Messiah, this God in a body. And this is what you're going to let it end like, is what they're thinking? The disciples crying, shocked, outraged, just at a loss for words and baffled at the grave injustice an abuse that they've just experienced and witnessed. God hadn't done for his followers what he expected them to do. Just like God didn't do what I expected him to do when my best friend in college died a month after college graduation, or just like God didn't do what you expected him to do when you had a loss or a job difficulty or a painful moment in your life and God didn't show up in the way you thought he should, but here's the crazy part. Jesus felt the same questioning pain you felt, and he yelled it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Because he understands, just like we understand, that there's nothing like confusing or disappointing or unfair or painful times in our life to draw us into the thick of the trees of questioning life. And really, in those moments of questioning and difficulty, what we're asking God is, are you there for me in this moment? Can I trust you, God? Where are you in this situation that is so opposed to what seems right and good, so diabolically divergent to what we would define as love? And you see, sometimes we can't see because of the pace of life and the blur of life, the forest for the trees. We get lost in the thick of things. And we resonate even further with the song from earlier. So wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. And it goes on and says this, And all this time I was finding myself, and I didn't even know I was lost. See, until we get up high until we see the forest and not just the trees, until we get the cliff notes version sometimes of our life when we're older and wiser, we miss the big picture of how God is pursuing us right now. That God pursued Adam and Eve, He pursued Abraham, He pursued David, and He has pursued you And he continues to pursue you with a kindness and a love to be in relationship with you. In fact, let me illustrate how we miss that by looking at the very question that we had for today Where are you, God? Where's the first place we see that question, Where are you, being asked in the Bible? It isn't Jesus, it's not Abraham, it's not even Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, where Jeremy was earlier, we see, as he, as, he, as he said, the corruption of sin come in, corrupting all of creation and alienating relationships and making things difficult. And the picture of life, of how we long for it to be that idyllic picture that Jeremy painted becomes something very different. And picking up at the same verse Jeremy read, and it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the, coo- in the garden in the cool of the day. That beautiful kneecap experience with God. But wait, it goes on. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? See, the first place that question was asked is actually God asking that of us. But, But, well, we hear that and we filter it through Adam and Eve hiding in the trees in the garden. We hear guilt in that. In fact, some of you who saw the card or saw the advertising that our question for today's message was, where are you? You responded that with a sense of guilt, like bad boy, bad girl, you haven't been in church enough, you're not faithful enough, you haven't given enough, you've been sinning too much, you shouldn't do all this, and all you heard was should, should, should. Because for you, hearing that God ask you that question, all you hear is shame, and guilt. And let me suggest to you that unfortunately, if that's what you hear, you're still caught in the trees and you can't see the forest. Your heart and your thinking are enslaved in the unhealthy iron jaws of religion instead of the freeing, beautiful relationship that God wants to invite you to today. Think about it. Why would an all-knowing omnipresent, creator of all that exists, God, who doesn't need satellites and drones and thermal imaging to find us, even ask that question, right? Well, he doesn't ask it to produce guilt. Even though God knows Adam and Eve have done something horrible, even though he knows that what they've done is going to bring corruption to a lot of things, the question he's asking to us is an invitation to relationship, a searching pursuing, loving, kind question intended to kindly invite us to come to him. Well, how do you know this? Well, consider this. Just a couple verses later, the same God makes for Adam and Eve garments of skin to cover themselves, demonstrating such a practical, thoughtful kindness. That's not a God who's trying to produce shame and guilt. A God who produced, uh, if God wanted to produce shame and guilt, He also wouldn't have continued to pursue relationships so patiently and kindly with disobedient and sinful people all over and over again, as the Bible text continually shows us. No, a God who wanted to induce shame and guilt in us would have been like uh, the parent or teacher or boss or coworker, you know, who, when you've disappointed them, they just ignore you unless they're yelling at you or criticizing you. He would have been, if he wanted to produce shame and guilt, he would have been the person with whom you never know when you're going to ever be able to jump high enough again to merit their kind attention ever again. But God isn't like that. We see him repeatedly pursuing us with kindness, with patience. And the ultimate example of that is Jesus himself, the incarnate God, coming in flesh to be touchable, to be knowable, to be the ultimate of close relationship to us. To the degree that Jesus, while he's on earth, is accused of being a drunkard and a sinner because he's so kind and so generous and so loving to people who are sinners that he's accused of being one of them unjustly. See, it's because unhealthy religion alienates us in relationship in order to help us try to jump high enough to be accepted by God. But God shows us here that He doesn't ask us to jump. He doesn't require us to jump. Rather, He pursues us. He comes to us right where we are, constantly asking, invitingly, kindly asking us, where are you? Will you come to me? I want to be there for you. You can trust me. But none of this matters. This can all be chalked up to superstition recorded on paper if Jesus was never resurrected. Because if Jesus was born, and he did all the kind acts that the Bible records of him, and he inspired some of the greatest, which we know from history, some of the greatest social, human, and political ideals of all of history are inspired by him, but he simply died as a martyr then it makes absolutely no difference. It's just superstitious words on paper. But if Jesus was resurrected, then he He is God. He's alive today. He's here right now. And He wants you, each and every one of you, to have a relationship with Him through His Holy Spirit, to know Him. And He's inviting you with that same kind question, where are you? Will you come to Me? I want to be there for you, simply wanting your answer to be, wow, thank you, God, for pursuing me, and I am going to be all in and following you. See, God had been planning the resurrection the whole time. Why? Because he's interested in fixing broken things. He's interested in fixing broken people. He's interested in fixing broken hearts and broken relationships. And the resurrection wasn't just a power demonstration to prove that he's God, although it was that. It was part of the relational plan of God pursuing us, loving us, to show us that God has been involved with our lives the whole time, with your life the whole time. Jeremy?
0: And the beautiful thing is we don't have to live in Good Friday. We don't have to live in Christ's death. You know, there is so much more for us. See, Christ rose from the dead, a sign that God is working on our behalf, that God has a plan and has had a plan from the very beginning. The resurrection says that God is still active and participating in the story that he has been writing from the very beginning. And while that doesn't mean that we won't experience pain or hurt, difficulty will still come, but it does promise us that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, things have been changed forever. Remember, from the very beginning of a fallen world, the Creator, the great Designer, has been calling out to His creation, inviting them to come back to Him, where are you, Adam? Adam? There's been pursuit since the very beginning, moving toward us, following us, providing ways to come back to him with the ultimate gift and sacrifice confirmed three days with the resurrection. And guess what the resurrection points to for us? It means that we too will be resurrected. Even though we are cursed to death, we will be resurrected and rejoin at the Creator King and the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 verses 2 through 4 tells us about this place where we will live after we are resurrected with Christ. Listen to this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It's a new city, a new earth, a new creation where God will dwell with us. Guess what? If you're anything like me, then then you've longed for the opportunity to go back to the garden and live with God in the very same way that Adam and Eve did. Well, that's what he's promised. That's what he's told us is going to happen. We will be restored to God. We will live not only the, the resurrected life with God without pain or sorrow or death or mourning, but there's more. We will reside with God right where he will dwell where he will live. See, the creator comes full circle with his creation. And that's why we celebrate the resurrection on Easter. Th- that's, that's what's promised to us. That we are going to live with God once again. I mean, can you get behind what I'm saying here, church? Do you hear me? Yeah? Let's worship God. Let's worship the risen Christ. Because we get to live and dwell with him in the new creation. We're going to stand and we're going to worship. But let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the story that you've been writing from the very beginning, creation, a a relationship with humanity, that, that you have been pursuing us and desiring to be with us over and over again, regardless of our sin, regardless of our fallenness, you have been pursuing us, and thank you so much for your Son. Thank you for his life, his death, that sacrifice that allows us to be restored to relationship with you, God. Thank You so much. And Holy Spirit, we are so delighted with Your presence that we can see and experience You right now here, God. Thank You so much. Let us worship Your name. Let us worship Your Son. Let us worship You today. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's worship the living God today.
3: God is good. If you are here today and you are a person who, when you hear that question, where are you, God asking you, you feel guilt, I want to invite you to a different kind of relationship. A relationship of freedom. I want to give you two opportunities to respond. If you've never experienced that kind of relationship with God, I want you to give me an opportunity to respond right now. To just... uh, as soon as we dismiss, step out and come down. We're going to have some people to meet you. If Some of the elders and prayer people can come down now. Uh, we would just have some people to, to pray with you about that and make a decision. Don't leave today without making a decision. Uh, if you're not, I just said that, if you're not ready fully to make that decision, I want to invite you to something else. We're going to be starting in the near future something called a seek group. It is a group designed for people who are uncertain of faith or people who are brand new into a faith but have no concept of the relational freedom that God wants you to have in that. I want you to email me at Ross at Go to Quest if you're interested in that, because we're going to form that group around the best time that can get the most people involved. Last time we ran it, and there's a bunch of people who couldn't be a part of it, so this time we're going to form it around when you're available. If you want that kind of relationship change, then do one of two things. Come down, talk to somebody, have them pray with you, make that decision today, or email me. And let's join the seat group. I also suspect one other, one other thing as well, and I would give you another opportunity to respond and follow up with what we talked about today. Some of you um, come Easter and Christmas and a few other times of the year, and that's fine. We're, I don't want you to feel any guilt about that, okay? But you probably do that because you, church hasn't been compelling. It's probably even got some baggage from you. I want to invite you to come back next week as we start a new series called Church Hang-Ups and Hook-Ups. And we're going to talk about how the Bible really presents a compelling idea for who we are as the church. Something that I think you will love to be a part of. And just give a chance to take another look at church and join us again next Sunday. Can I just pray for you right now before we go any further? Lord, we just ask that you would continue to make yourself real to each and every person here. Lord, I pray especially for those who feel guilt when they think about their life and think about faith. I ask that you would remove that and that they would experience your generous, extravagant kindness and walk into a place of freedom in following you that brings so much joy and light and color to their life. I just bless them now and bless everyone here as we continue to go our way today and celebrate that you are real, you are alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.